Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And together we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare moment... It would mean the world to us if you drop a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help boost us up the algorithm and are a great way for us to find new listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on so many different social medias. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a whole website just for the podcast. It is closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has a newsletter, Unboxed. So if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and on all the literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. All right, on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Jack and Connor coming at you. Hello, hello. And we are dropping in real quick before we get into the episode because we received a really incredible review. We always say, hey, drop a rating and review. It really helps the show out. And guess what? It also uh, makes us really happy and very excited. (laughs) Um, It does. Yeah, this is a fantastic review from Nigel in New Zealand. And he says, hi, guys, I finally succumbed to your pleas. Thank you. We did when we first started asking for reviews, we made what we termed desperate pleas. And indeed, they were. (laughs) Uh, Hi, guys, I finally succumbed to your pleas. So I'm writing a review over the last few months. I've gone through the whole catalog from the beginning when you were saddened by the Trump election. When uh, we, we were and are very sad. Uh, through Still. some very interesting discussions right up to the present. Hey, I listened when walking my pug through the streets of Christchurch here in New Zealand. Thanks for the Chris Tease episode. He says, anyway, as a poet, I really appreciate your analysis, your humor, your positivity, and your development over the years. Thank you for noticing development over the years. Sometimes it <laughs> it's hard to, to feel and see, but you know, we've been going through the old episodes to put them up on YouTube, and I feel like, yeah, there's been quite a bit of development. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I mean, we used to be like, okay, 20 minutes and I have (laughs) nothing more to say. We did it. And now Uh, it's like an hour and 20 minutes and there's so much more to say. And I know. And it could be three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, we've we've really developed. Yeah. uh, Development over the years that you have been crafting your podcast. Crafting is a very generous term. I appreciate that, too. (laughs) Um, You have made me enthusiastic to go back to the table in quotes, and compose more of my own stuff, fantasizing that one day I'll be good enough to have poems that receive the same sort of close analysis and appreciation that you bestow on the material that you have selected for your show. Thank you so much. Uh, So five stars, keep it up, and know that you have an audience down here in the Antipodes. New Zealand is culturally close to our neighbor, Australia. Number one, fantastic O-U-R spelling on neighbor, and anybody who's been listening to the show knows that I've been fixating for reasons even i don't understand on australia lately (laughs) um nz is culturally close to our neighbor australia but perhaps a bit more laid back okay so that is sort of a review 
That's more than sort of a review, Nigel. That is an all-timer review. I hope it gives you a boost. It most certainly does. <laughs> Hear you soon. Thank you so much, Nigel. Thank you, Nigel. And if any of you want to be like Nigel in New Zealand, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. We love them. And we love all of you. And if you like to also, while you're praising, uh, if you want to give any sort of, you know, offhand sort of slights at uh, neighboring countries, that is also particularly welcome because that's hilarious. And if you are listening from Australia, well, I'm curious to know what you think. Is that yeah. true? Is New Zealand more laid back? Let us know. And yeah, tell us where you're listening from. It's amazing to know that you're listening while you're out walking with your pug. That's pretty cool. Let us know where you listen, how you listen, all that good stuff. So thank you and can't wait for more reviews to come rolling on in. And also, sorry it took us so long to to get to this one. There was, for some reason, it doesn't show up on the normal Apple podcasts, but got a notification that we're one of the top arts podcasts in Kuwait and the service that lets <laughs> us know that. Also shows reviews, and this review was only showing up there. So finally saw it. Sorry it took this long. Yeah, so um, sorry for the delay. And yeah, thank you so much. Keep writing. I, I love to hear that it's it's also been good, productive energy for, for your own craft. Yeah, it's really lovely, hopefully. And it, and it makes us feel like, you know, we're about to go into an episode right now. And uh we hope it lives up to that review. Keeps us keeps us working hard. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. Woo! Woo! And we are with you yet again to read a poem and talk about that poem and read it again. And once again, we have a wonderful poem by a wonderful poet. Yes, we do. And this is one of those uh, episodes with a fairly classic poem, I would say. It is. Yeah, it is kind of a marquee poem. Sometimes we have marquee poets and we, we pick a deep cut. <laughs> like, like deep album cut but this one this is kind of marquee poem marquee poet big time all the time times yep they said play the hits um and that's what we're doing we are uh the occasion for this is is a somber one um the poem is called the dancing it's by the poet gerald stern who uh died recently um I believe in late October of this year, he was 97, um, which is pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, this is a poem. We'll talk more about it, but it's it's one that I think he often read um, at his readings. It was often anthologized. I encountered it in college. Um, and yeah, he is... Um, he is an interesting poet. He 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 got his start pretty late. Um, he wasn't published until his forties, I believe, and then his um, first book came out when he was near fifty. And then his next book, uh, "Lucky Life," which was kind of the one that 
um, was a breakout collection. Um, I believe he was about 58 at that point, or maybe a little older. Um, he was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1925. Um, he was the, the son of Eastern European immigrants, um, Jewish American, which is a big part of his work overall in this poem in particular. Um, and yeah, real kind of, yeah, classic American poet just, yeah, uh, we will, we will miss him. Um, well, his, um, he, his first big, big, big thing, I think he won the national book award for, um, this time which was a new and selected poems collection in 1998. And, but he's won, you know, all the things um, and was publishing. Uh, he, he, his latest collection, I think was um, published in 2020. Um, Blessed as we were. So uh, yeah, he was writing to the end. I think that yeah. timeline is really, helpful for him and just in general for folks to to know and to think about and to keep in mind that it's you know never too late to get started you never know when something you create will strike a chord he got attention in his early 50s and he won the national book award in his 70s yeah you know like just keep writing and making things and thinking about stuff <laughs> And yeah, and don't get caught up on when you think you should achieve things or when you should do something. Keep doing it. You never know. You know, he was obviously writing and working and thinking and doing all the things you need to do to keep making interesting and vibrant work. But, you know, won the National Book Award at 73, published the book that got him a lot of attention at 52, didn't publish a poem until his mid 40s. Like it happens when it happens. Um, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think he also has some interesting quotes about what it meant when he finally kind of got bitten by the poetry bug and that it was like a really profound thing because he had studied English and he had been writing. But when he really kind of got dedicated to poetry and it really kind of lit up for him, he's got some really interesting and insightful comments about what that meant to him. So I'd also encourage folks to check that out if they want a little bit of a little bit of inspiration. I think that's a that's a good one. All right. This is The Dancing by Gerald Stern. The Dancing. In all these rotten shops, in all this broken furniture and wrinkled ties and baseball trophies and coffee pots, I have never seen a post-war Philco with the automatic eye, nor heard Ravel's Bolero the way I did in 1945 in that tiny living room on Beechwood Boulevard, nor danced as I did then, my knives all flashing, my hair all streaming, my mother red with laughter, my father cupping his left hand under his armpit, doing the dance of old Ukraine, the sound of his skin half drum, half fart the world at last a meadow the three of us whirling and singing 
the three of us screaming and falling as if we were dying, as if we could never stop in 1945 in Pittsburgh, beautiful, filthy Pittsburgh, home of the evil melons, 5,000 miles away from the other dancing in Poland and Germany. O oh God of mercy, O oh wild God. This is a great poem. Yeah. Oh, man. So it's good. Just the, it's just perfect. And it, it, well, and it's perfect in so many different ways. It does so many different specific things so well. Like it creates a, a scene really well. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. makes thematic connections really well. It moves from one scene to another really well. Like it just, the language is really good. Like it, it does so many different things that um, I remember I've mentioned this before, but there was a drumming program that I listened to a lot when I was a kid that my dad had like taped off the radio. And in it, they talk about like how bands come together mm -hmm. and they talk about how like, if you have a great band and a terrible drummer, that band's going to sound bad. And if you have a mediocre band and a great drummer, that band is going to sound good. Like kind of how the different components of the band come together and what parts do what. And I think there are poems that maybe do one thing really well and some other stuff not so good, but it's still a good poem. And there are certain ones of those things where like, if you do it really well and the other stuff is only okay, it's still really good. And mm -hmm. if the poem's really good, but one thing is done really poorly, the whole poem suffers. This is a poem where like all the musicians are playing at their very best. You know, like it's a jam band that gels or it's an orchestra <laughs> that's played together or, you know, it's like it is yeah. where all the different parts are just really in harmony in just the right way, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's really right. That's a great way of of putting it. Yeah. And just like, you know, as the we do a little play by play narrative rundown um, towards the beginning most times and this one in terms of the simple story is pretty is pretty straightforward it just in terms of speaker is with his mom and dad in 1945 um and the war world war ii has just ended um and um importantly for this poem as is kind of like re uh, re referenced um at the end in poland and germany we get the sense, you know, the um, the concentration camps and the, the the camps of the Holocaust have been um, liberated. Um, and so there's this celeb the families having this celebration, basically, about the news. Um, and that's there's kind of this ecstasy about it, um, but also the pain of all that has happened. Yeah. And there's uh, the when St Gerald Stern um, died, there was a there's a great kind of obituary for him. Uh, there were I mean, there were a number of them. Um, one in The New York Times talked about um, this poem um, and it came out in um, his collection Paradise Poems, which was in 1984. 
Um, and yeah, they're just they the the things that they said about it. Um, there's a there's a video um, on the Poetry Foundation website that the New York Times article references um, that has um, Edward Hirsch, who's a esteemed poet and critic, is talking about this poem and says, "quote This extraordinary moment of dancing is really the liberation from the camps in 1945." Um, and suddenly, you realize that this moment in Pittsburgh. This paradisial moment in Pittsburgh is also an infernal moment, or coming out of, or coming out of an infernal infernal moment in Europe. And Gerald Stern also about the poem. Uh, we remember the famous words that after the Holocaust, after Shoah, there can be no poetry. Um, the alternative is after Shoah, there can the only poetry. His mother had come from Poland. Um, his father had come from Ukraine. So that that I just felt like that was a provided a really sort of su succinct thematic kind of sense of this the moment that this uh, poem is capturing. Definitely, I'm not like the the biggest World War II buff. But what I remember is Hitler kind of kills himself in the spring of 45 as his army is retreating. And then you have sort of the simultaneous advance of the Soviet forces from the east and then other allied forces from the west. And as they go through like Germany and Poland, they are sort of encountering the concentration camps and. Uh, and even the the German uh, government and, and military tried to destroy a lot of the evidence um, and also tried to to they they did a number of like, I think, mass executions. Right. When when they knew that they were going to lose, they blew up some, you know, gas chambers and places and things like that. But there was still plenty of evidence. And then. As I mean, it, there's really just a million remarkable stories where um, some people who are in the camps learned, you know, that the tides had turned and they kind of organized, you know, other people in the camps to kind of resist. And it was this kind of, yeah, I don't know. It was, I think the rest of the world did not fully appreciate what had happened until this until the moment of the liberation. Um, so it was this kind of like, and I, the reason why I talk about it from that perspective is that this poem is um, like, he has family roots and connections. And as a, you know, a Jewish American, he is like intimately connected with the horror and the persecution that took place. Um, but is at the same time, you know, in is safe in Pittsburgh in the U S um, and is kind of learning about it, um, you know, over his the post-war Philco, which I think is like an antique or I, I guess it wasn't an antique at the time, but uh, state of the art at the time, state of the house. art, <laughs> a premium radio. Yeah. Um, and and one of the, the beautiful, I think, profound central hearts of this poem that the that the title gets to is like. 
the dancing that there's two dancings you know there's him and his parents dancing in pittsburgh and then there's the other dancing in poland and germany and this kind of this distance and connection that's happening kind of simultaneously um is like what is kind of so chilling so it makes me think of kind of the events that were transpiring where you like people knew but you know it was sort of unclear and then just when the camps were being liberated it was like oh like it was actually far more horrendous um no i think you're right i think the discovery of kind of the true horrors that had gone on under the nazi regime has been an ongoing learning for the world in a lot of ways because there is the information that is quote unquote known like people knew that this was happening people knew that hitler hated jews that he was persecuting them but he dressed it up in a lot of language that allowed folks to look the other way or to talk about in the 30s you know how he's helping germany economically through its troubles and whatever even though people knew that he also said all this stuff about jewish people and lgbtq people and any group that he could point to and say, you know, the problems of Germany are because of X, Y, and Z group. And, you know, I've been reading, I mentioned in my recommendations in our last episode, I've been reading um, one of Timothy Snyder's books about the Holocaust. And it's the Holocaust is part of the title is the Holocaust as warning. And one of his major points in it is that like the whole Nazi ideology was racial supremacy. It wasn't so much a political agenda as it was basically what's outlined i haven't read it but my understanding is what's outlined in mein kampf with hitler which is just there are races doing eternal battle on the world and the german race should attain its natural position atop them and must do so through blood and conquest like that is the animating political philosophy if you even want to call it that it's not it's a racial supremacist philosophy that animated all of what the Nazi party did. And they came up with a bunch of other mechanisms to exact this on the world. And I think, yeah, going along with what you're saying, there were parts of it that were known at the time, but over time, more and more of these veils fall. And it doesn't mean that there aren't still people who are like weirdly cool with Nazis because they're out there. But you know, more and more of the horrors are known. And for those who dance with delight at the destruction of the Nazis and all that they stand for, more and more reasons to to dance. Yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. We we also talked about another poem fairly recently by Samuel Ace that also like concerned um the Holocaust in, in its own way. Um yeah, no, um, I, I was thinking about that a lot and general anxieties around fascism and yeah, yeah, and what it um, means. definitely yeah. feeling those. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because I mean, it, it's it's like I don't know, it's it's one of those things because like there's always been a strain of authoritarian currents and also like Holocaust denial currents, um, and they ebb and flow. And we're in a kind of uh, flowing, 
right now. And, you know, you have like pretty high profile uh, people like Kyrie Irving and stuff who are, you know, sharing Holocaust denial bullshit. Um, On the one hand, it's this weird combination of like a the denial of the atrocities and then also kind of the growing explicit trumpeting of the fascist Nazis and people associated with it. Um, and, you know, it's not just the Nazis. It's like, you know, in Italy, you got the rise of the election, recent election in Italy, the the party that is like associated with uh, Mussolini has like gained power um, and other things like that. And so it's it's everywhere. And it's um, but it's. It's it's where I, I feel like it's not it's not enough to be like. um. I <laughs> do not deny that the Holocaust <laughs> happened. It's like it's not enough to just be like, yeah, it happened and it was really bad. It's like we're at a point at which the forces that make the Holocaust, like as you were saying, like the Holocaust as warning possible are kind of on the rise again. And so they have to be combated. Well, like this is, I think what's important also to understand. And again, this, a lot of this is coming from what I've been reading lately and I highly recommend as I did last episode, this book, but like the way that fascism happens is not like, Hey, we're going to set up a concentration camp. The way it happens is a group comes along that says, we're going to make your life really great. We're going to ensure all of the comforts you ever wanted in abundance for you. And guess what? The reason you don't have it, it's this group's fault. Let's get yeah. rid of them so that you can have everything you want. And this was the rhetoric that the Nazis used. And they targeted essentially like the German middle class and their scapegoats were mostly Jews but also other groups essentially saying like Germany would be amazing and you would have everything you ever need except for X, Y, and Z. Let's take care of that. And then the wars of expansion are wars to acquire nearby essentially colonial holdings, except that they're on the continent of Europe to then make life better for the German middle class and to provide more goods for them more cheaply. Why do why does Ukraine get invaded by the Nazis? It's Europe's grain basket. It's, you know, mm -hmm. that that is literally how this happened and how the Nazis kind of made their pitch in a lot of cases. It was like, you want a good life? We'll make it happen for you. And that is a really attractive pitch to someone who is either in reality or just their perception like life is not as good as it was or it's slipping away uh, and with that kind of front of mind it then makes a lot of the rhetoric in for example the united states right now around certain kinds of crime suddenly look a lot creepier because it is people who don't necessarily have a lot to fear it puts them in a mode where they're like, oh, my God, I'm afraid and this could happen and crime is going up, even if violent crime rates are comparatively very low right now and haven't actually risen almost at all. It puts that mindset of, oh, my God, I have to protect what's mine and these forces are encroaching. That happens. And you're exactly right. You 
it then makes the job of those who are not interested in fascism or who are worried about fascism, it's similar to the way that folks talk about having to be anti-racist. It's not enough to just not like racism. You have to be actively anti-racist. It's not enough to just not like fascism. You have to be anti-fascist. Number one, remembering this era of history and that it wasn't that long ago and that the way it happened was a bunch of everyday people bought into something horrific. That's like the stakes that you're working against. You're not working against like entirely stupid, evil people. You're working yeah. against a bunch of normal people making what for them feel like rational decisions. Yeah. And that's how it happened in Europe in the 40s. That's how a lot of people felt in the United States in the 30s. Anyway, that's kind of a ramble. But the point is, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that right now, it, like it's not enough to just not like fascism. You have to be anti-fascist. You have to be out working against fascism because yeah, it's happening. No, it's really true. I mean, well, and it it's it reminds me. Um, I actually was was recently at an event that was uh put on by the Minnesota Humanities Center. Um, and it was put on by our excellent social media manager, Corey Chena. Um, Woo! and it was this, Go um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was this, there's this amazing, uh, documentary. Um, it's not super long and I think it's on YouTube, so we'll link to it. It is about basically at Fort Snelling, which is in the twin cities area during World War II to fight Japan, the U.S. Army basically um, recruited a bunch of Japanese Americans um, to learn Japanese and and not, I mean, and many of them knew it, but to like uh, to, to study it and and become extra fluent and they were linguists and then they were um, and so they were trained um at Fort Snelling. And then many of them, you know, went into the front lines on the, you know, in the Pacific. Yeah. And, 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 you know, this, this documentary is, is kind of a remarkable story that I had never been told. Um, but one of the things that's, that it shows this incredibly strange and sort of terrible contradiction is this was at the same time that, um, the U.S. was uh, forcing um, Japanese Americans to be in um, basically incarcerated in internment camps or concentration camps and then recruited people from those camps in the U.S. to then fight for the U.S. Um, and they have these remarkable interviews with people who who served then and were like, you know, they just talk about their experiences and yeah, it was just an amazing event because I, I mean, it also, you know, the U.S. notoriously did not uh, let in that many Jewish people from Europe and was sort of engaging in its own racial supremacy and uh, like carceral logic um, at the same time that it was fighting the Hitler regime. Rachel Maddow came out with a new podcast called Ultra. I listened to her interview with Chris Hayes recently, and and basically it's about 
like fascists and anti-fascists during World War II and that there were a lot of very pro-Nazi groups, like explicitly pro-Nazi groups that were like trying to organize in the United States and sort of spread Hitler's propaganda and stuff. And then at the same time, there were it was often the work of just regular people who were anti-fascists who stop them when the FBI like didn't care basically. Um, yeah. I mean, in, and yeah, in, in 1939 is when the famous Nazis at Madison square garden rally happened. Like it wasn't, it was the same year that Hitler invaded Poland. Like it, it wasn't like it was that separate from the outbreak of the war. It wasn't in those those early years when people were like, oh, oh he's helping the German economy or whatever. Like it was pretty far along in the whole Nazi mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And Nazis were allowed to march in Madison Square Garden at what I might add, the organizers called a pro-America rally. So Wow. Yeah. So And like, you know what? Yeah. You know what? Here's here's the here's here's, <laughs> here's the bullshit, okay? All right. Here's the thing. I think a lot of people read about that or they read or they watch stuff from the civil rights era and they're like, oh, look at these assholes. Like they're being such dicks to kids who just want to go to school or whatever. You know what? All those assholes had kids and not all of those kids got out of that cycle of assholery. (laughs) Like, yeah. If there are enough Nazis in 1939 to fill Madison Square Garden, sure, some of them, maybe even most of them, kind of got over it, maybe, during the war and like the horrors that were revealed and they were just like, oh shit, I didn't know, I wasn't paying attention, whatever. I thought this was just like good for America. Number one, not all of them did. And number two, even the ones who were like, okay, not the Nazi stuff. There's probably a lot of other stuff where they're still like, yeah, but uh, that other stuff's probably still pretty, pretty sick ass, right? Like, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't just go away because it's people who were long ago, you know, like the shit continues and it's easy to silo it in the past because you watch a black and white film of a bunch of grown adults hurling insults at like a black teenager who's just trying to go to school and you're like, wow, that's awful. I'm so glad we're not like that anymore. Guess what? A lot of people are still like that. <laughs> yeah. You probably know some. Like, it it does not just go away. Things get better, but only because people make a really concerted effort to make them better. I, I mean, to me, like, I'm thinking about that personally in connection to this poem, because part of what comes through so strongly is the way that there is still this like obvious deep emotional familial connection to something happening 5000 miles away like it's not just a human connection it's not just a religious connection like there is the specific call out to the dance of old ukraine like the parents immigrated at this point maybe 40 years earlier i think both of his parents came to the united states in uh 1905 Uh, 20 years before he was born and 40 years before this scene. But like the way that this poem creates those deep direct connections, I think we have an easier time talking about and thinking about, you know, the collective trauma that gets passed on. Like no one denies, I think that for a lot of folks who grow up Jewish 
in the United States, pretty much anywhere in the world, the event of the Holocaust is a formative experience for understanding their family history for so many people. I mean, millions of people died. But I think we have to keep in mind that the same is also true for a lot of folks on the other side of the Holocaust. And maybe it is folks rejecting or reckoning with what happened, but there are also people who are pretty okay with that heritage, the same way that like the way the civil war has happened in the United States. It's a, it's different because Europe has done more work to kind of reckon with the past, but also there are far right parties in Europe today that are gaining power and they're doing it with a lot of the same rhetoric around refugees, for instance, who are coming into Europe and they talk about how, well, we, we need to make sure they don't take our jobs and they don't take our whatever. And look at us. We're today's shitheads. Um, but like the the connections that can be passed through generations exist for the good and the bad. Yeah. Yeah. Cause because I think, you know, one thing that I um and I'm really glad that you um are connecting it to the poem because I um I am like, oh yeah, there's so many good things in this poem. <laughs> um but yeah, one one other thought that I that I have is like um, you know, I, I am grateful to have sort of, you know, I am, uh, not Jewish, but we learned about, you know, I was, I am grateful to have learned as much as I did about the Holocaust and everything, you know, growing up to like have that sense. Um, and at the same time, I do feel like I, I learned it in a context of like, it happened, it was horrible it will never happen again that was a part of history that's gone um and i think more and more the more that we like and and what you're talking about like parents of kids you know i was also listening to a recent thing a couple recent things on you know like reconstruction and the rise of jim crow and like that's another part where it's like i learned okay civil war happened then somehow there was Jim Crow. And it's like, how the what? Civil War happened, then <laughs> slavery was over. And then at some point there was this other system that we also then had to get rid of a hundred years later. Yeah. And it's like people in the South, white people who had been slaveholders, did not want to give that up and violently often tried to maintain it through, you know, racial terrorism and stuff. And the period after, you know, the Civil War was a very long period over generations to recreate a semblance of the society and the order and the economy and the hierarchies that had existed during the time of, you know, slavery. Um, well, it's also and, fascinating. I mean, this is, yeah. this is possibly getting off on a big tangent, but like it's also <laughs> fascinating in the South in the United States because you have a lot of folks who were poor white folks who were not slaveholders because I forget what the actual numbers are, but I believe there wasn't a majority of folks were actually not slaveholders, a majority of white right. folks in the South. But you now needed a way to enforce racial hierarchy so that they didn't feel like black folks were the same as them. So you create a whole new system that even free black folks can't be the same as poor white folks. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a way to make everybody a slaveholder, which yeah. is deeply fucked up. 
Yes. <laughs> I've been trying not to swear as much on these. I can't help it. It's so I know, I know. enraging. Uh, but yeah, I is mean, it? that's why the post-reconstruction 1877 to 1919 is referred to historically as the nadir of black life in America because it's not slavery, but there's this like license of racial terrorism and there's this. Yeah, yeah. There's both kind of like these kind of ongoing like structural and like systemic political and economic forces that are contesting each other sort of through time, you know, um, that yeah, let's talk about the evil melons. Yeah. Wait, can you structural economic forces? These fucking evil melons. Oh, my I know. God. OK, so that was that's this is an amazing part of the poem because, oh, it's so good. It's one of the you, best parts. Can you talk to me about that? Because that's you know, that's the melons, you it's know, the melon family. Andrew you probably Mellon. know them from the Mellon Foundation and the founding and, of the National Portrait Gallery and the National and Carnegie oh, Mellon. Oh, I, love, I love art. I love art <laughs> so much that I have to take everybody's <laughs> money and then buy art for myself. But then, oh, when I'm going to die, I'll make a National Portrait Gallery and everyone will love me forever. And here's the Mellon Foundation. Eat shit, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And they were Pittsburgh people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious what you make of that, because, oh, um, you so know, I Connor. Yeah, because. OK, here are my two questions. A, yeah. it's like, why bring up the melons in the poem? Uh, and then B, why where it is? Because right where it is, it's like as if we could never stop in 1945 in Pittsburgh, beautiful, filthy Pittsburgh, home of the evil melons, 5000 miles away from the other dancing in Poland and Germany. Oh, God of mercy. Oh, wild God. It's it's the last detail before we get to Poland and Germany. The other yeah. dancing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the fact that it it's it's such an interesting inclusion, right? Yeah. And and the placement makes it even more so because it's part of like what you're left with from the poem. Unsurprisingly, I'm going to shock you right now. I'm going to I'm going to shock you like you've never been shocked in your whole life, Connor. Uh oh. Guess what I'm gonna shock you with? You've got one guess. History. It's more specific than that. <laughs> knowledge. Fine. Yes, I'll shock you with history knowledge. No, Connor, you'll be shocked to learn that I'm making a connection to something in a Bruce Springsteen song. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Fall out of your chair with that one. Okay. So wow. yeah, anybody? Okay. Yeah. That's exactly. me falling out of a chair. Um, so there's a Bruce Springsteen song that is actually, fun fact, came out of uh, talking with and reading reporting by a journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner Dale Maharich, who I was lucky enough to take some classes from at Columbia. He's a great dude, and he's done a lot of writing about poverty and inequality in the United States. And in fact, he won his Pulitzer for doing an update on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men which was about going back and visiting the families that James Agee visited with and seeing kind of what had happened over time. So this like intergenerational familial kind of situation. But the Bruce Springsteen song Youngstown, which is about Youngstown, Ohio, and about essentially cataloging, which Dale Maharaj has done in his reporting for now like 40 years, what happens to these towns that are so destroyed. And so in the, in the song, 
there is a line that I think points in a pretty strong direction about what we're going to do with the melons in this this old piece. Because let's remember, this poem is about 1945, but it wasn't written in 1945 because Gerald Stern wasn't some whiz-bang hotshot kid writing these poems in his 20s. No, he was a cool <laughs> dude who waited till later in life to be super successful. So he's writing this with years of reflection later on. And I think this is a moment where that shows up in the poem. So in... The song Youngstown, which came out in the early 90s, there is a line which is about the decay of Youngstown, Ohio, and it says, Them big boys did what Hitler couldn't do. When my daddy come on the Ohio works when he come home from World War II. Now the yard's just scrapping rubble. He says, Them big boys did what Hitler couldn't do. Which is about basically that all of the industry, all of the good jobs in the town have been destroyed, hollowed out, moved away. And Hitler never conquered the United States. He never bombed Youngstown, Ohio. But the extractive forces of capital managed to hollow it out and make it a ghost town and get rid of all the union labor and move it elsewhere. Right. So if you're writing a poem thinking about Pittsburgh, in let's say the early 80s which i believe is when this was written or at the very least i think it's when it was published yeah that is during the era of deindustrialization and you would perhaps be seeing that all of the things that were economic challenges to pittsburgh many many years before perhaps in 1945 when pittsburgh would still have been beautiful filthy pittsburgh and to <laughs> see that it was many years on, still beautiful, filthy Pittsburgh. You might ruminate on the evil melons and the way that they suck out the juices of a city and create institutions like Bank of New York Melon, which mm. has trillions of dollars in assets and is considered my, my favorite thing that I learned preparing for this podcast episode was there is such a thing as a systemically important financial institution or a systemically important bank that's Ooh. a fun way of saying too big to fail uh oh it is a financial institution that is so important to the global economy that if it failed it would risk like national problems mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think what this also does in the poem and the call out to the melons and the filthy pittsburgh and the evil melons is that uh andrew melon ugh, um <laughs> <laughs> was the secretary of the treasury all through the 1920s, 1921 to 1932. You tell me if anything important related to money happened during those years. Wait, I think some bad money things happened that you would be in fact, correct. Okay. I would say two things about the evil melons. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is that it points to that recent economic history that perhaps created conditions for fascists to get a toehold even more so than perhaps usual in the United States. I think that's pretty evident that in the aftermath of the Great Depression, I mean, you have many popular figures who dip their toes in the waters of fascism. You've got Father Coughlin on the radio. You've got Huey Long down in Louisiana, who, even though he's doing a lot of progressive stuff, he also has some unsettling ideas about how cool it would be if he retained power. There is clearly a spirit of norm breaking, and I think it points to that economic history. I would also say for the evil melons, 
that a lot of folks would hear the evil Mellons and then say, wait, 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 what about Carnegie Mellon University, this wonderful institution that they helped found and give funding for? What about the National Portrait Gallery? What about, you know, all of the philanthropy that the Mellon Foundation does? It's evil in disguise. And those are the exact same kind of things that folks would say about Hitler when he was coming to power. Well, we don't like what he says about the Jews, but he's going to help make the, you know, economic conditions in Germany better. The Mellons and their evil are covered up. And perhaps this is pointing towards a similar kind of revelation moment relating to the melons. Could there be an unmasking that happens um, that would perhaps lead to better things for Pittsburgh? I don't know. It, it's a really interesting inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, no, that those are my thoughts. I don't know. What what do you think? I those are my thoughts, but I'm not particularly confident about any of them. <laughs> so no, other than yeah. that, I agree that the melons are pretty pretty bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I still like the National Portrait Gallery, you know? Like Sure, sure. But no, I, I mean like, that, I like yeah. all the museums that have Sackler wings. Well, yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, the Sacklers who are the 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 um op- opioid pushers of the country um are also the philanthropists and philanthropy is is yeah famously the well not famously but um is often a distraction or a cover um for bad deeds um in the name of prophets no yeah i um that makes a lot of sense to me well, and it it's interesting that detail about him being the the sec the in government uh during the twenties. That's that's quite relevant. Um and I think, you know, so the other thing that is and I'm not sure the quite Yeah, and I think him writing it um when he did during what Pittsburgh was going through in terms of deindustrialization. That also seems very relevant. Um, and I think, yeah, the other thing that's interesting too is, is like, you know, you have um, so much of the, uh, the rest of the poem, you know, it begins in all these rotten shops and all this broken furniture and wrinkled ties and baseball trophies and coffee pots. Um, and you get kind of one, I guess, nice thing with the Philco. Um, or at but least even I, that he's never seen. Right, right. Or I guess yeah. the speaker has never seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Um, and, you know, there's a tiny living room and it's, it's filthy Pittsburgh. There's a real sense you know, partly you get a sense of the speaker's family that they're not <laughs> of the economic status of the melons. You know, they're they're in a, a tough neighborhood with rotten shops. They're they've got small living quarters, you know, they're immigrants. Anyway, there's a and and it the fact that it opens to it, I think, is a very it's notable to have sort of that contrast with then the evil melons coming in at the end 
um, where there's kind of the, the diametrically opposed kind of family in terms of wealth and stature um, that is also part of the same city. And that's, that's, that's interesting too, but I don't know if I have much to add to what you're saying. I mean, I think it's really right on. It's fascinating because I think, um, and I do want to talk more about the poem, but the poem is so, I'm glad we brought attention to it because I think lyric poetry often its attention to like kind of systemic structural stuff and like like those bigger kind of things and like a larger class consciousness and all that kind of stuff i feel like it doesn't i think it's it's clearly there it's rife through lyric poetry but it when people talk about lyric poetry oftentimes i think that dimension is not highlighted as much um, and that, you know, it's like you leave the structural stuff for like academic tomes and, you know, nonfiction manifesto treatises, whatever. Um, and poetry is for the trees um, and, and the and the heart. And I think it is for the trees and the heart. But I think the the amazing thing, too, especially when you are dealing with an atrocity of such scale to reckon with it, you do have to reckon with the larger forces that that helped bring it into being, um, you know, and and that involves kind of larger struggles of of capitalism and uh, colonialism, and so part of me thinks about that too. Um, that this poem, in the midst of just this wonderful scene of you know, you're and you're just like caught up in the poetry of like, you know, nor dance as I did then, my knives all flashing, my hair all streaming, my mother red with laughter, my father cupping his left hand under his armpit doing the dance of old Ukraine, the sound of his skin half drum, half fart, the world at last a meadow, the three of us whirling and singing the three of us screaming and falling as if we were dying as if we could never stop i mean that's just like amazing and you have all those verbs like the ing the um streaming cupping doing um whirling singing screaming falling um flashing it's like you're caught in this whirl of motion um, that's so joyous and um, and kind of beautiful and filthy, you know, I mean, you have the like the sound of his skin, half drum, half fart, uh, which is amazing um, with his. He's just like got his he's doing like some armpit stuff, um, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, I don't know. And then and just like that beautiful small moment, like something I always feel like poetry is best at sometimes is there's just all these things that are happening and shaping our lives and pushing people in directions and like in these big systems and wars and economies and capitalism and all this stuff. And then we're just kind of like moving around with our stack of skin, like feeling a bunch of shit about it. Um, and to to do both things to like kind of properly situate um 
where you are in those larger forces, but then also keep um keep the the focus on on the heart of the thing and the feelings is like to me that's like what poetry can do at its best um and so i feel like having both of those things like you know the melons it's not the obviously the focus of the poem um but that plus the kind of the the um gritty details of rotten shops and broken furniture's opening like really put us in a a place and and you know you can read about Gerald Stern's biography and, and you can like get a sense of where he's coming from but you don't have to do that to get the sense of that in this poem you know what i mean it's like you have to know what happened in 1945 it's like you get the doing the dance of old Ukraine. You know the 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 kind of living conditions they have. You know the city that they're a part of. That's in part being shaped by the melons um, and those forces. And then you know that they're no longer in Eastern Europe, but that they're intimately connected to it. Um, and I just I feel like this poem is is just so perfectly like making that constellation. So you really like, you're just so brought into that room. You get it and you feel it. Cause then, cause to me, then the end, what it's like, the end is so the poem is like caught in its throat, you know, like at the very end, like from the, from the other dancing in Poland and Germany. And there's a sense that it's like, there's going to be more said about that, maybe, um, especially because you've got this long, long, long sentence that's been going for sort of ever. Um, but then it goes, oh, God of mercy, oh, wild of God. It's like it's it can't you can't even describe anything at that point because of obviously in part in large part because of the magnitude of the horror um, that's just taken place and been encountered. But I feel like the, the amazing thing is that the poem, it brings you to that point so that when the poem comes face to face with it, you're also face to face with it. So that when it's like, Oh God, you you're there too. And you feel and know what is not being said. That's kind of what's that's the only way it works is if you know what is not being said and what the the kind of oh god exclamation is is sort of referring to. Um and so much has been written about God and the Holocaust and concentration camps, you know, Oh God, wasn't there or, uh, you know, what does it mean for faith that these kinds of horrors could happen? There's so much agonizing about that. And so it's really interesting and powerful to have this kind of connective God at the end of the poem, as opposed to that siloed off from the horrors of the world you know, 
I think that's really fascinating as well. Yeah. I'm thinking about the first thing you said in the episode of how everything was like working together. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just curious, like, cause I kind of got, I got caught up a little bit <laughs> in uh, this and that, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering, like, I don't know what, what the, I don't know what was drawing you to the, to the poem and in, in terms of those elements that you were talking about. Yeah. I think it's almost that it has sometimes when you read a poem like this, that has such a vivid scene in it that you can really feel and it gives you the soundtrack to it and it gives you the setting in a way that you feel like you're, you're right there from the beginning with the rotten shops and then into the room where the music is playing and the people are dancing. Like you're, you're so in it. I think sometimes you get a real sense of where, of how the camera moves. Like it starts on the street and then you go up the stairs and then you're in the room or whatever. This moves so fluidly, but the camera feels impossible because it can jump 5,000 miles in an instant. It's like some some films now are experimenting with the use of drones and they'll hire like the best drone pilots in the world. Michael Bay did this with his film Ambulance and <laughs> the drone can like fly through tiny aperture openings and whatever. And it like zooms around so quickly and it follows the ambulance around and whatever, you know, like you don't understand how the camera can move like that. But here this is taken to even another level. And it's never jarring, but there is an impossible camera in this poem that just moves wherever the poem needs it to, and it's always the right place. That's, I think, what was drawing me to it. Because even when you're suddenly going from the family home in Pittsburgh, maybe to somewhere in Pittsburgh that is a melon location, or you're then suddenly in Poland and Germany, it's not a jarring jump cut. It's not a change of scenery where all of a sudden everything's digital and it's on a blue screen because they couldn't afford to go 5,000 miles or whatever. Like it just is there. Yeah. I also feel like, and I still need to think more about it, but yeah, it is like basically one sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a real elegant sense of lineation and line breaks um, and the way that, you know, the clauses um, kind of expand and contract in a way um, where like, you know, you begin with like in all these rotten shops, comma, in all this broken furniture. And that's like the first line. And then you get like in wrinkled ties and baseball trophies and coffee pots. Um, and so you get this kind of expanded sort of like sense of the scene um that's sort of the pre the pre clause or whatever and those are like longer lines you know to some extent then you get this like four lines without a comma and they're shorter you know like i have never seen a post-war filco and that's its own line with the automatic eye and that's its own line nor heard ravel's bolero the way i did and that's its own line in 1945 in that tiny living room. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but then but then when you get to the dance part, you know, it's like on Beechwood Boulevard, comma there's there's so much I just feel like the way that the clauses are broken up against the line breaks 
is really amazing that lead into because there's this the the thing about this poem is that I feel like there's these two there's like when you get to the world at last a meadow it's like oh my god <laughs> uh, in a way and it kind of opens up the poem you know because you're like in this little room um, but then it's like the world at last a meadow is just like I don't know I feel like I'm in Wordsworth's nature paradise or something yeah. um but to get there you know and then obviously the the end of the poem is kind of the second moment um but there's like nor dance as i did and then there's a line break then then there's a comma my knives all flashing comma my hair all streaming comma and then there's a line break uh my mother read with laughter comma my father cupping line break his left hand under his armpit comma doing the dance line break of old Ukraine comma the sound of his skin half drum comma half fart the world at last a meadow it's like a I don't know how to describe it exactly but there's a things are both kind of whirling forward but they're also broken up a lot in a way um where you know, there are some kind of more intense enjambments where it's like no dances I did then where like you kind of break after did and then you only have one word for the comma that kind of like someone like spins you around in a room and then they like set you, they like grip your shoulders and then you're stopped and then you're like, okay, now you're looking this way. And it's like, we're flashing the knives and we're doing the dance. Um, and then you kind of do the dance with the family in a way in like kind of with the rhythm of the lines and the commas. It's marvelous. And then it just it kind of continues in a different way um, where instead of moving the bodies, you're moving. It's Pittsburgh. It's the melons. It's the other dancing. And there's like a, a similar kind of momentum that leads up to that final line that's also the final sentence that kind of brings everything to a halt um so that's just another like i think there's more to say on that front but i think this poem is also really like instructive from a craft perspective of just like it's it's not something it it feels very natural kind of as you were saying and the language is is simple um and it's one of those it has like a very quiet form i think um that it's it's constructed really well and so well that you don't quite notice how it's guiding you all those places so that finally once you get there you're like oh wow um it's kind of it's like a I feel like I gasp a little bit <laughs> at the end every time or something. Um, and it does but, have a fairly yeah. firm guiding hand. It will tell you, you know, look here, look there, as you were saying. I, on the kind of direct level, it will say, my mother read with laughter. My father cupping his left hand under his arm. Like, look, here's what my mom is doing. Look, <laughs> here's what my dad is doing. You know, it moves from one to the next. And on a more meta level, you mentioned the verbs that come in 
in that section. There's all these ing words. All of a sudden, it begins flowing in a different kind of way. Sure, it's all one sentence, but that part particularly feels, you know, one part drives into the next, and that gives you a pretty strong sense of how the poem wants you to feel a little freer in that part of it. You know, like it on many different levels, it is pretty directly pointing you towards where it wants you to go, how it wants you to feel without it feeling overbearing. Yeah, I really agree. Shall we hear it again? Let's read it again. This is The Dancing by Gerald Stern. The Dancing. In all these rotten shops, in all this broken furniture and wrinkled ties and baseball trophies and coffee pots, I have never seen a post-war Philco with the automatic eye nor heard Ravel's bolero the way I did in 1945 in that tiny living room on Beechwood Boulevard, nor danced as I did then, my knives all flashing, my hair all streaming, my mother red with laughter, my father cupping his left hand under his armpit, doing the dance of old Ukraine, the sound of his skin half drum, half fart, the world at last a meadow, the three of us whirling and singing, the three of us screaming and falling as if we were dying, as if we could never stop in 1945 in Pittsburgh, beautiful, filthy Pittsburgh, home of the evil melons, 5,000 miles away from the other dancing in Poland and Germany. O God of mercy, O wild God. Jack, what's up? Uh, what have you been uh, consuming lately or reading or listening to or processing in some fashion <laughs> or other? Nice. Nicely done. <laughs> yes. Off air. I have been bugging you about this because it has been a big part of the last little bit around these parts. Uh, heading into the winter months and obviously doing a lot of raking, uh, as alluded to earlier. Um, <laughs> we love to rake here at Close Talking. Raking is great, but the best part about raking is that you collect your leaves and then you can turn them into a compost and that can then be used to fertilize your garden. Um, and in the spring of last year, I made two fairly sizable compost piles. And this is the first kind of full season of going through the compost. Um, there was some last year and it was great. Um, but this year is really like the the piles are quite established. And there was some of the harder to break down stuff from the larger pile. And I went through both of them in the last week. And compost is magic. I just can't get over <laughs> how cool it is to go out there and be like looking at it and thinking, wow, I remember all of the apple cores and all of the twigs that went into this and they're just, they have vanished. And now there is this amazing dark soil that is going to go all around the garden and it just looks so good and healthy. And there's a huge mound of it. I think we have like probably a ton and a half of compost now, like literally a ton and a half. 
and I've started getting some of the leaves from this year ready. And you know what? A uh, compost pile is already heating up. It's warm on the inside, just like it's supposed to be. Like, it's so cool. It's so cool. So, yeah. That is awesome. My, my recommendation is do composting. Um, and I And it's something that is becoming a bigger part of our waste management systems, even though I think waste is probably not a great word for whatever compost can be composted um but like a lot of municipalities now have composting programs in so even if you don't yourself have a yard or a garden or a means of composting like in an apartment in a city the city probably has a municipal composting program i really urge everybody if you can if you haven't already become a part of that like find out how to be a part of it because in a lot of larger cities, especially that municipal compost is then free for other folks to use. And that's a great thing in terms of helping people just do gardening or grow food, even if it's in pots in your house or in your apartment, like that's amazing. And that's a really cool thing to do. Um, and on the larger level, like it's great to see the systems of nature at work <laughs> and I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, heck yeah, heck yeah! Sustainable food systems, Connor. I'm Boom! I love it. Yeah, so I love it. That's uh, that's what I've been processing. <laughs> what about you, Connor? What have you been up to? What are you What are you listening to? <laughs> reading? What are you processing? I am processing um a lot, but it's still the same. I'm on podcast land still. Uh, which I've is been part... listening to Ologies from your recommendation. Oh yeah, what do you think? Digging it. Did you listen to the Vampirologies? Like compost, Connor. Digging it like Ooh. compost. Yeah, no, I listened to to both of the Vampirology episodes while I was doing some garden stuff, both that turning the compost and bringing some herbs in for the winter. So, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I've got a bunch of other ones downloaded, ready to go. Uh, took awesome. me a little bit to get used to the style. Yeah, they're because they um, the kind of like jump out of the interview thing. Yeah. yeah, I I don't mind it, but I definitely had to adjust to it. The kind of hybridized interview style. Definitely rocking it. I feel like I shouldn't be recommending the same shit, but there's a recent series. You know, I'm a big fan of the dig which is a podcast through Jacobin, which I'm less big of a fan of, but the dig is pretty good. <laughs> um, it's with Daniel Denver. It's, it's, a, it's a lefty thing. They do a lot of politics, a lot of history, stuff like that. But they recently, um, they're doing this four-part uh, series. I mean, it's not like a series, but um, series of episodes um, on like recent history of iran um oh, which i did not i really knew very little of it um and it's very fascinating and they've they've only come out with the first two so far but probably by the time this airs there will be the third part um and it's with two scholars um eskandar sadeki and golnar nikpur and they are just really really good at 
Um, yeah. So the first part is 1906 to 1941. Um, and then the second part is 1941 to 1953. Um, and that's the, the 53 is this, this coup, uh, the CIA MI6 coup of Iran. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because it's recent. So it, they, they're just coming out. And so it's kind of happening in the backdrop of, you know, the huge, um, protests and movements that have erupted in Iran, um, and, you know, over, um, like women's rights and, um, a lot of other, uh, things. And it's just, I, I find it, um, yeah, it's been very illuminating because it to me, there are certain countries where it's very hard to <laughs> learn about them from the U.S. because yes, the, the politics and the geopolitics are so fucking confused. I feel like this is one of the few kinds of things where I don't know. I it it felt like I was getting. Obviously, it's not like, quote unquote, neutral or objective. And they're like coming from particular, you know, politics themselves. But it was it felt like it was a more honest and less uh, and comprehensive view of Iran that I found really helpful. Um, and they just talk about, you know, like there's like the ends of the Qajar dynasty ending as the 1900s get going. Um, and that's like kind of a greater Persia thing. And then they're kind of torn between British and Russian and then Soviet like colonial forces. And obviously oil is like a big thing. You know, there's another like there's the there's Reza Shah who becomes like the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. But there's also like really just interesting movements that happen. You know, there's this kind of um, it's called like the Constitutional Revolution um, that happens in the early 1900s. And just like a lot of, um, you know, and then when you think about like not just the, quote, modern borders of of Iran, but then the kind of wider region that um the terror, like, you know, uh, modern, like Azerbaijan and things like that. There's like so many complex, um, you know, and then they, they also talk about like the, um, Baha'i religion sort of emer like started in the 1800s. Um, anyway, there's just so many things going on and there's, uh, and there's so many contesting forces, um, you know, there's like, there's the kind of aristocratic element, there's the colonial elements, there's like, there's lots of disparate sort of working class elements. Um, and, and it's also interesting in terms of, you know, um, I think Golnar Nikpur, she's more focused. She, she like specifically studies, um, like the development of carceral states. And so it mm. is throughout the whole thing is tracking, you know, like when do the first prisons, when are they first built in Iran? And like, it's, it's interesting. She, I don't know. It's just a very nuanced look because really like just, I just 
knew very all I knew was like there was a coup in the 50s and then something there was a big thing that happened in the 70s that changed it and now things are weird um <laughs> which is a, just a really <laughs> possibly the lowest bar to start with but um that's where I was <laughs> uh anyway so I just yeah I really recommend the that part those episodes and so the first one came out October 27th it's Iran 1906 to 1941 with Eskandar Sadeki and Golnar Nikpur the second one came out um this Tuesday so what is that November 1st Iran 1941 to 1953 um today Mossadegh oil and the CIA MI6 coup and then there will be two more that will um cover I think up to the present or very close to it so um yeah if if you've been hearing about Iran in the news this year and you're curious um I found this these episodes to be a very good um and kind of thorough uh introduction to recent Iranian history very cool that sounds really good yeah Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Those reviews help us with the algorithm and are the best way for us to find new listeners. Do you have thoughts about this poem? Or is there a poem or poet you'd like us to cover on a future episode? We would love to hear from you, and there are tons, tons of ways to get in touch. Yes, you can send us an email to closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. On Instagram, we are at Close Talking Poetry. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And speaking of all of those many and varied social media platforms, a very special thank you to our incredible social media manager, Corey China. Woo woo. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Come back again. Please come back. Just one more time. Door's always open. Okay, bye. I see ya. Mm-hmm.